My Life Now is a half-hour podcast show which regularly features reviews of new releases and all-time classics of both traditionally published and self-published books. Tune in for special guest interviews and, of course, helpful tips to not only write your next book, but also to help market it. My Life Now is most often referred to as a great way for authors to get quality exposure and avid readers to discover their next read. Without further delay, here's another stimulating episode of My Life Now. Welcome back to another episode of My Life Now. Once again, my name is Dallas here today. We have another amazing author joining us here in the studio today. His name is Jewel Robinson. Jewel, such a pleasure to have you here today. How are you? Doing well today. Excellent. And, and Jewel, where are you calling us from today? Where are you joining us from? Uh, I am in Trumbull, Connecticut, which is not the end of the world, but it's close. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Joel, I don't know if you know this, but I'm actually calling you from Brazil today. So I'm pretty far as well on the, the ends okay. of the earth. <laughs> so that's the great thing of technology. We can connect together from, from very far places. And so, Joel, I'm, I'm so grateful to have you here today and talk about your newly released book. And so if you could tell our audience the name of your book and when it was released. The name of the book is uh, Precincts. Uh, Prejudice and Murder. And the book yeah. was released in uh, 2023, approximately August of this uh, year. All right. So this is a, a newly, a pretty new book here for our audience today to get behind and to, to purchase this book available on Amazon. And so, Jewel, just tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll talk a little bit about what inspired you to write the book. Well, that's going to be a very long story since I'm almost <laughs> 90 years old. Wow, amazing. Uh, I fool That's everybody amazing, because I don't sound like it, but I am. Hmm. Uh, well, I was born in New York City in the Depression. And my father was killed in an automobile accident when I was two years old to make matters even worse. Wow. And so I grew up in the streets of New York, which is a great education in one way. Um, and I was a baseball player. Did have a tryout with the Red Sox, but was nowhere near good enough to be a, a professional ball player. But it, uh, uh, because we didn't have very much money, uh, I had to go into the uh, army during the Korean War in 1950s. And then that gave me the money to go to college. And when I got out of the service, I went to, uh, I went to uh, City College, the School of Engineering for one year. And then I went to uh, Columbia for 16 years and actually never graduated because my company that I was working for going to school at night, um, per, uh, they purchased Avery Dennison uh, purchased the company I worked for and they brought me to California to handle the acquisition. So I'm nine credits short of a degree and never, never finalized that degree. Mm. And I've been in the uh, printing business for about 50 years. It's, uh, so that's something of my background. Yeah. And so what led you from that all the way back there to now today, you're an author, you released a book here a couple months ago. So what bridged the gap for that for us? <laughs> well, I tell you, with the number of years I've gone to school, I should have more degrees than a thermometer. Hmm. But uh, uh, what what happened was I became a very, very big reader which is the best sense of, the, probably the best way to get an education. 
And uh, because of the reading I've done, it uh, always interested me in trying to write a book. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, like anything else. Uh, there's far more to it than meets the eye initially. Yeah. And uh, this first opportunity to, be, uh, to write a book uh, has taught me an awful lot. And I'm sure I'll be much better as I go forward. Yeah, yeah. So this is your first release, your first book. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Oh, I got to warn you, Joel, be careful. Because I hear a lot of authors, they release that first book and it's just the floodgates open up and you release another and another <laughs> and another. So be prepared, be cautious of that. Well, it's, it's amazing you start a new career when you're 90 years old. Though. Yeah. That's a little bit <laughs> odd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but you probably have many, many things to give us. And so let's talk about this book itself. So what inspired this book? It's a, it is a fictional book for all of our audience today. It is a fictional book. And so what led you? Well, the book the book is it? based, as a matter of fact, most of the book is factual. Uh, my wife passed away uh, in 2021. Mm -hmm. And I had an enormously expensive insurance policy because of my business, which I'm still operating, by the way. And uh, because of her, uh, where she would require a great deal of care. So once she had passed away, I decided to stop paying on this insurance policy because it was a great deal of money. And my insurance agent said, no, you don't have to do that. You can sell those. I said, come on, nobody's going to buy it. It was a, a very, very multi-million dollar policy with no money in the policy. Well, lo and behold, the company in Florida paid me $485,000 for that policy in wow. which they become the beneficiary, which immediately I realized was putting a crosshair on my back because the best thing for the insurance company would be to shoot me. Yeah. In wow. any case, that is the basis of the book. So uh, the, the idea was that because of uh, people I know in New York, the fellows with the bent noses, the book is about a mob organization that buys an insurance company and then begins knocking off the policyholders to collect the money, mm -hmm. which is a sure way to make a lot of money. Uh, so to, all of that is very factual. Uh, but twisted within it uh, is the idea of what it would take to kill somebody. Uh, as I said, I was in the military and unfortunately, part of a very dangerous job I had, I was ordered to kill two people at very close range. Fortunately, in both cases, I didn't have to pull the trigger. But I saw point, the lieutenant at one point said to me, if the man moves, shoot him, that's an order, which meant I had to kill him. And I was more frightened than the guy I was holding the gun on. And I realized wow. how crazy you have to be to kill a human being. Yeah, what that would do to a man, so, right? If you did something like that, if you carried it out, wow. That, that is uh, where you, you see stories of policemen and they say, why didn't he shoot him in the leg? Why did he? Ha you have no idea how frightened you are when you're holding a weapon. Mm -hmm. Forget about what you see on TV or movies. I mean, that's all nonsense. So uh, because my major, by the way, in college was philosophy, I got in, I was interested in, in why a man or a woman would kill anybody. And so I twisted this story. Uh, it is a twisting story of uh, how you solve uh, a murder where there's no evidence, mm -hmm. uh, which is all part of this. 
you looking for a spooky ghost story inspired by true events? Haunted Houses by K.S. George is just that story. The kind of ghost story that haunts your past, your present, and your future. Written during the pandemic season, George takes you through a journey that you will never forget. Find your copy on Amazon today. Coconut Country Living was started with a simple, yet somewhat daunting mission. To heal the world through tasty superfoods. Searching the world to bring you the best organic coconut products, spices, and super greens, they have gathered the highest quality organic ingredients that satisfy your palate and every healthy diet. If you're ready to take the next step of strengthening, healing, and making things right, then visit CoconutCountryLiving.com for more information. And also, uh, a great part of the book is the prejudice against women, especially in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And and I'm a great believer in equal opportunity, but do we want equal opportunity in things like uh, national defense, for example, or in police work? You take uh, two police people in the street, let's say in New York, a man and a woman. No woman is going of 150 pounds is going to handle in a physical altercation with a guy 250. Yeah, she's going to have to use her gun, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, all of those things are part of the book uh, and with a, a, a very unusual ending, mm-hmm. which is essentially the way these types of books are written. I mean, this is not great literature. It's an interesting story. You're a storyteller. That's it. You're a storyteller. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, Joel, what was it like? Because whenever I talk to an author, I like to get into the the making of the books. And so what was your process like? Did it all just come to you very quickly and it just boom i know i need to write this down or was it more of like a you're searching for the next chapter what was the the process like for you well so much of my life uh for reasons i can't come up with an explanation for have been very unusual mm-hmm. uh things have happened i mean uh for example i had to go into east berlin or I also went to East Czechoslovakia in my military work. Enormously dangerous. But of course, at 18 or 19 years old, you're too foolish to know how silly this is. Mm-hmm. And in all these cases, uh, I came out unscathed for the most part. I mean, I never uh, had any real problems. Although many of the people around me never made it. Wow. And and, uh, and Joel, this is a crazy things, question here, but why do you think you made it out unscathed? Why do you think that was for yourself? No for you? sheer luck. Not certainly wasn't brains or ability. Uh, it was just sheer luck. Uh, and uh, you you wonder. I mean, uh, the most unusual part of of uh, let's take my business for example, which I opened uh, fifty years ago. Uh, there is almost no way, at least in America, where you can go into business with no money. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I mean, you can open up, maybe you can open up a newspaper delivery service or something, but you can't open a major business without money. And I was able, throughout my entire 50 years in business, to run a multi-million dollar business with no money. And oh. always something would come up, really unusual, talk about stories. Uh, my partner, who was 
undoubtedly uh, one of the finest production people in printing in this country. He was also a compulsive gambler. And he was able to get out of the gambling. He was a, a key person in Gamblers Anonymous, which is a great part of how this story goes, starts. So we, we opened his business with no money. And sure than hell, within about three or four months, we're almost broke. Even though we had commitments from companies for business, we had all sorts of things that were very positive, but we didn't have any cash. The, one of the printing plants we were working on was run by a, a fellow by the name of Al, who uh, was a compulsive gambler. And he uh, lost a lot of money to the mob, and they were going to kill him. So he called my office, and Erwin, my partner, the compulsive gambler, was out. And he mm -hmm. tells me, Joel, you've got to come down here. Just, he wouldn't give me the details, but I, I guessed what it was, because I knew what Al was kind of a crazy guy. So Irwin wouldn't go without me. So we go down to the village. This is on Hudson Street where his plant was at. And we go to a little uh, sort of a food store run by the mob. And this guy, Eddie, is running this place. And uh, the they mob decided to shoot Al would really make no sense because they're gonna, not going to collect any money. But when Al told him about Irwin, they wanted to him to run the plant so they get their money back. So we get in, we walk to the back, and uh, there's a little, little table with only uh, three chairs. I had, a, I was standing, and I'll keep the language very nice, at least for this podcast. And Eddie comes out and he says, "Can you run this plant?" And Erwin uh, says, and he was, Erwin was frightened. He says, "Yeah." And Eddie is a character out of. Uh, uh, right out of Hollywood, you know, 38 in a yeah. belt, big fat Italian guy. He said, get your ass upstairs and start running it. So then at that point, I said to Eddie, just a second. He says, who the hell are you? I said, I'm the guy you got to talk to. He says, what do you want? I said, I want to get paid. I said, we need, at that point, we were making 36000 a year, $3,000 a month each, Irwin and I. So the mob... We didn't do anything illegal. Irwin went up to run the plant. I didn't have to pay him. That was how we were able to stay in business. Now, the next interesting part of the story, a guy I knew in California calls, and Levi has a need for a million tickets for uh, uh, identification, but they need it in a few days. Well, my friend Irwin is running the plant. I call Irwin, says, I'll put the job on right away. Because of that, we shipped in about three to four days, and then Levi started giving us a great deal of business because we could turn orders around very quickly. Ordinarily, deliveries four weeks, so three or four days was really unusual. But it's that kind of a thing with how we stayed in business. All sheer luck. I didn't do anything. Yeah, I knew how to handle Eddie, but that was, you know, that was just being streetwise. That's all. This is incredible. I love the way that you're telling the story because it just sounds like an adventure. It sounds like a movie. And then with your your New York accent, it just adds to the power of the story. And so I think you should do an it's audio all real. I think you should do an audio book for your book, Joel. I think that would be incredible. I, I can imagine myself <laughs> just sitting back, listening to you read the book to me. I, I could I could definitely see this. I think that's that's amazing. 
And so let's talk a little bit more about it. So something, a running theme in the book is the 19th precinct. So tell me a little bit more about that and, and what that means through the book. Well, you have, you have to have a good story to have an audio book, of course. The question is how successful this book is going to be. Uh-huh. Yeah. And Joel, a running theme in your book is the 19th precinct. Can you tell us a little bit more about what this means? I was never a very good manager. Uh, I was always a very good salesman. And, and, and an idea person. I always came up with ideas. Now, uh, one day, Harry Winston, the diamond merchant, called my office. And they had a tremendous problem in the jewelry, especially fine jewelry. Believe it or not, they used to write out the tickets for jewelry, for rings and bracelets, by hand. A little tiny dumbbell ticket on a ring. And Harry gets me on the phone. He says, I heard about you. He says, I did. He says can you come up with a system? to uh, identify diamond rings. I said, yeah, I think so. Now, it was a very foolish thing to do because there was no money I could make in this. I mean, the business that you're in, in printing, you have to sell millions of units to make anything. It's a penny business. So to sell 3,000 tickets for rings, you'd make about 10 cents. <laughs> so I went up and met with Harry, and I looked at it, and this is just sheer, sheer luck. See, with a ring... Uh, a ring is manufactured, but it doesn't sell for several years. So they have to clean it several times to make sure it's sparkling and looking very pretty. So it goes through a very caustic cleaning solution. And when you do that, it wipes out all the information that somebody wrote on the ring. So I had to come up with a system of automatically a machine that would write the ticket, but also an ink that would not come off in this caustic cleaning solution. I picked up a thing called butyrate. And this was sheer luck. The ink that the company I was buying from married with this butyrate where it wouldn't come off of an atomic explosion. Hmm. And, that was, and, and then I, I sealed the ticket with a gromlet made by uh, a company in Brooklyn. Uh, so now here's the part of the story that really gets crazy. Because so now Harry's happy. But Harry was being robbed, and he knew they weren't able to catch the guy. Now, he owned the K jewelry chain at that time. So what this guy was doing, uh, it was in Texas. They would send 50 or 60 rings to Texas, and the guy would switch the rings from $812 to one that was $795 and send it back to the office for credit and pick up $50, $30. Very difficult to catch. But with my system, he had to break the ticket apart because I had riveted it with a gromlet. So that's how Harry caught this guy who had stolen $26,000 over a period of years. Wow. Well, Harry, who is one of the strangest men I'd ever met. And just to give you another back background on, on Harry, a guy comes into his store on Fifth Avenue, if you're familiar with Harry Winston's uh, operation. And he wants to buy this necklace for $30,000, a long time ago. So the guy says, I'll give you $15,000 in cash, and I'll give you property for the other fifteen. dollars So Harry calls his, the guy's from Texas. So the guy, he calls his friend in Texas, is it worth $15,000? He says, well, they're drilling in that area, but nobody's ever found anything. For $15,000, take it. This, Harry telling me this is the deal he lost money on. Harris explaining this to me. Less than three or four weeks go by, he gets a letter 
from an, an oil company wanting to buy the property. Calls his friend, says, what do I do? He says, put a ridiculous price on it and see what they do. He sends this back $250,000 for this $15,000 property. Back comes the check for a quarter of a million dollars, and Harry took it. It was one of the mm -hmm. largest oil finds, and Harry's told me this is how he lost money. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, wow. Harry is... Harry is so excited about this twenty-six thousand. He he has me meet him in a candy store around the corner on Fifth Avenue, and he said, I, "I heard you're going out with this girl." I said, "I'm going out with a lot of girls, Harry." He says, "I heard you're serious." I said, ah, "I don't know." And he he says he opens up a tissue with a diamond in it, and he says, "What do you think of it?" I said, "It's very nice, Harry. I can't afford it." I didn't ask you that. Do you like it? I said, yeah, it's nice. He said, get your ass upstairs, pick up a setting. You pay me whenever you can. Well, I, I, I got a damn fool went along with this. I bring the ring home. I empty the coffee out of the coffee can in the refrigerator, put the ring in, put the coffee back, put it back in the refrigerator. Wound up proposing to this girl because I had wow. the ring. And that's how I got married. <laughs> so, wow. Uh, yeah, so, you, you know, it's always a straight, there's always a twist to an ending. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's a good storyteller. That's a good storyteller, right? That there. Uh, my that system of rings, by the way, is what's used throughout the jewelry industry. Yeah. That's incredible. Uh, which I have many of those uh, kinds of things that I've come up with. But I was always more interested in having a good time than I was really in making money. I made a lot of money. Can't say I didn't. But I I never bothered with the money always came easy and I was always have a lot more interest in having a lot of fun than anything else, which is why I got involved with the book, which it's a lot of hard work, but it's also a certain amount of fun. Yeah. Telling your story, right? Of course. And get them to tell all these stories, right? Hmm, amazing. And so do you have any other books planned, Joel, or is this your done, one and done? Is this it? Uh, what Do I have any other good stories? Any other books in mind? That you want to release? Oh, any in the future. oh yes, I I'm actually working on a book right now. Uh, it is uh, it's a fascinating period of time, the 1960s, which is one of the more uh, unusual periods in American history. Uh, the number of changes that took place in 1960. Well, I'll give you a few. Uh, the FDA approved the, the pill, for example, which changed all women's behavior. Yeah. The stock market almost collapsed and had to, because they couldn't handle the volume. The volume increased to such a level in the 1960s, they had to go and computerize. Uh, you had the end of warfare with the Cuban Missile Crisis, where war no longer became a positive thing to be done because everyone would be annihilated. Mm -hmm. There's so much that took place, and it all deals with really the baby boomers who were born in the 1930s, and then would were in their 20s in the 1960s. Uh, and uh, so I have a book which deals with somebody in that period of time, and again, uh, what does the times make the man? Does the man make the times? Which is the 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 basis of it, and it's something I'm still working on. It uh, well, there's a lot of research involved, but uh, something we should be watching not ready out for, for publication. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, that, okay. that's that's down the road. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And going back to our the book, our main topic today, Precincts, Prejudice, and Murder. So what else would you want us to know about this book today? That's a that's a vast topic. Uh, we live in the times where uh, people don't read any longer. I don't know if you're aware, but the uh, in uh, the 1800s, the, the higher level of percentage of people who could read who were literate than there is today as a percentage. Obviously, there are less people in 1800 than there were in 1923. Uh, and we have... There's a great difference from being educated and being smart. And if you look at some of the things that are going on today, uh, we're dealing with people who are not very smart. We are allowing the lack of accurate information. I mean, you have people in this country that don't believe that Biden won the election, even though the evidence is all to the contrary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have actions being taken which uh, are incredible uh, that people would go along with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's almost like uh, the story of the Pied Piper where he takes all these children and marches them off at the end of a dock. Who would do such a thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, so I'm, 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 what I'm looking for, we need, there are certain verities in life uh, and these need to be properly identified. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't continue to stumble forward as we are today. If you look at our entire political system, uh, look what went on this week where they, they may uh, the government may shut down to no one's benefit. Mm-hmm. No one's going to win in such a thing. How could such a foolish thing take place with highly intelligent people? But yet we're right here on a threshold of that yep uh, yep and since people don't read any longer books nobody's reading books today compared to what uh, 50 years ago certainly mm-hmm. so uh, i'm looking for answers in something like that uh, you know based on the fact that i'm 90 years old and have that and have a terrific memory that mm-hmm. i can i can recall the opening i can recall the attack on pearl harbor in 1941 December 7th. I remember listening to the broadcast. I was seven years old. Wow. Uh, and so you're and saying that the... as we continue to read, it encourages our minds to continue to grow and expand and to retain information, to remember and, and all of those things. Yeah. Right. And the extreme benefit. The other part of my education, perhaps the best part, uh, I had the Walmart nomination in which I had to do printing around the world. So I had to open offices in 26 countries around the world because Walmart, whatever identification, if they were buying a T-shirt in South Africa, they wanted the tickets made in South Africa. And this gave me an opportunity to uh, pick up languages. I had to study Chinese. Uh, I do speak French and German, uh, but it, it was a great education with the, the cultural and, and uh, linguistic and, uh, and emotional differences and danger. Yeah. The dangers of traveling overseas, mm-hmm. you know, with, with uh, being kidnapped and things like that. Mm-hmm. And of course, I, w- I, I knew what I had to do in South America or in Central America, for example. Uh, see, what you, uh, when I was uh, in the service, 
operating, you know, going into East Berlin or, or those kinds of things. Uh, you had to program yourself to be ready to do what you had to do. In other words, you couldn't just turn around, pull out your gun and start shooting. That, no mm -hmm. one no one is able to do that. So you'd have to work on it. You'd have to do. I used to put a quarter on the back of my hand held straight out, drop it and try to pull the, the gun out before the coin hit the street. Mm -hmm. And I would do that a hundred times a day. To this very day, if you scare me, I'll reach for that holster, which isn't there, but out. Wow. And so I had to train myself because if I was kidnapped, if they got me in the car, I was a dead man. Nobody's going to ransom me. So you knew, you know, those are the things you had to do. And wow. these are all part of education that you have to do if you're going to function in those countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I lived some time in Asia, in Thailand and Cambodia, and now I've been living in Brazil for the last four years. And so it is definitely different than the States. Other countries are definitely different than the States. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, although uh, in China, what surprised me, I mean, if you know anything of your history of what the Japanese did in 1937 in the in China, and this woman was a little girl, but she she was crippled and brutalized by the Japanese, but had no anger with them, which was amazing to me. Or the people in in Formosa or Taiwan, who were very willing to. Uh, well, this was before Hong Kong, of course, uh, to join with China. You, you know, you, you get a far different, when you're on the ground in a particular country and you can communicate with people, mm -hmm. you you see uh, whatever you read in the newspapers may not be necessarily correct. All part yeah. of education. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Joel, thank you so much for joining us here today. I have so many other questions that we could ask, but our time is running short. But you you okay. provided so much to to leave us with today about your book. And so, oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And always, one more time, always for fun telling stories. Uh huh. Your book is available on Amazon. They can find that Precincts, Prejudice and Murder on Amazon. Find it also by searching your name, Joel, Joel Robinson. And so that's all there as well. We also have a link in the description today. And anything else, Joel, that you want to just leave us with today, like one overall point from your book today or a message you would want us to take away? Well, I think the most important thing, especially since I'm 90, is health. Uh, I've uh, I've lost two wives. Uh, my son was killed in an automobile accident. Well, uh, health is the most important thing. Because, and uh, there's no substitute for it. And we need to cherish it. And when you say health, you're so saying you got eating any, good or exercise. Which which side are you taking here? Well, I'll put it this way. Uh, if you have anything to do tomorrow, you better try to do it today because tomorrow may never come. Wow. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a terrible thought, but a very accurate mm -hmm. one. Yeah. The reality sinks in, right? Right, mm -hmm. Joel? Yeah. And Joel, I have another question here today. Who do you think this book is written for? Who is your target audience for this book? From what I've seen, uh, women uh, who have faced prejudice, uh, the prejudice of, of uh, the direct prejudice of my book is really in, in uh, uh, law enforcement. But uh, they have been, they, as a matter of fact, they all bought the book or read the book trying to find uh, answers to uh, 
prejudice that they've felt in uh, in the workplace mm-hmm. which is so common today right in our world this this is so common today and it's becoming more and more common i would say well it's it's also uh a little bit of foolishness because uh the entire concept of equality is misunderstood mm-hmm. uh it, uh, as I say in the book, uh, equality is something for an isosceles triangle in, in, in a mathematical proof. But women are not equal to men and men are not equal to women. I mean, we're all equal before the law. But uh, go back to the 150-pound woman against a 255-pound man, mm-hmm. uh, man in the street. There's no equality there. So the idea is, are we going to uh, do away with public safety? by allowing women in jobs they don't belong in because they're looking for equality or, and that is one of the questions in the book. Wow. Not fully answered by the way. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time here today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for telling us a little bit about your story and your book as well. I really appreciate it. And I hope that we can have you back on for the second book that's going to be released soon, right? Your, your new book that you've been working on. So, well, at at this point in my life, I'm always available. All right. (laughs) Thanks, Joel. Take care. We'll see you on the next episode. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye now. Thank you for listening and supporting another episode of My Life Now. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast show and share it with a friend. Together, we can keep the message of these books alive. Until we turn the next page together, stay classy.